Once you stop learning, you start dying, according to Albert Einstein. I'm sure there are many of you who are students today who think, no, 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 it's the process of learning that's killing me. But that has not actually been proven. Increasing our knowledge and our ability to think, which is actually different, is critical if we are going to live the kind of lives that God wants us to live. And there is no more important knowledge than growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And it's why we have our equipping ministries. But the reality is, is if you and I don't take seriously a study of God's Word, then we could be Christians for 25 years, but we are still going to think spiritually like a child. We will lack a mature knowledge of who God is, and we will forfeit all the benefits of that knowledge. You know, at one level or another, all of us are going through difficult times right now, and we need that knowledge of God. Some of you that I've met and talked with are in chronic pain. Some of you are facing a very difficult and fearful diagnosis. Others of you have broken relationships, financial problems that, that cause you great anxiety. And what we need, all of us need, is to increase our knowledge of God, both intellectually and experientially. We need to know how God reveals himself. We need to know his character from his word. But we need to experience that in our relationship with him. As the Bible says, we need to taste and see that the Lord is good because the Lord is good. And so today we begin our series on one of the greatest men in the Bible, Joseph. We've entitled this series, Joseph, a story of God's sovereignty, because one of the main themes in his life is that God is in control. And it's something that you and I desperately need to understand. We need to feel that in our bones. We need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is in control of our lives and that we can trust ourselves to him. And you know, we need to know that as a church too, don't we? It's been about three and a half years that we've gone without a senior pastor. And some of you are getting a little antsy. I can sense that. But you don't have to. We don't have to be antsy about this. Yes, you and I can mess things up. And yes, it is a mystery how the sovereignty of God relates to our, our disobedience. Our disobedience always brings about consequences, always negative consequences. But somehow God manages to bring about his will even through that disobedience. God is in control. And Joseph's life shows us how God seemingly paints himself into a corner with no options that are clear, no solutions. And then he does something unexpected. He does something miraculous. And can I say he does something usually very, very cool. And he brings about a solution that you and I might not have known. So as I'd like to say, just because you and I have run out of ideas doesn't mean that God has. And so studying the Word of God is absolutely critical for us. And you know, speaking of one of the main reasons why what, was, what happened in the Old Testament was written down for us, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And that is certainly true about the story of Joseph. You know, Moses gives Joseph more time than he did Adam or Moses or Abraham. There is a lot for us to learn in the story of Joseph. There is a lot of hope and encouragement for every one of us who will study it. 
And so we begin with the first part of the story. You can find it on page 31 in the blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you. They'll also be on the screen. We begin with the very first point, Jacob's problematic gift. Here's our passage. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The previous chapter, chapter 36, talks about Jacob's brother Esau, and it walks through his line. And now we turn to chapter 37, and it will talk about Jacob, specifically Joseph at this point, because it is through Jacob and his family ultimately that the Messiah will come. Now you may remember earlier in, in Genesis that Jacob loved a woman named Rachel and he wanted to marry Rachel and he thought he was going to marry Rachel but then on his wedding night Rachel's father Laban tricked Jacob and gave his older daughter Leah instead. Now the Bible doesn't say exactly how that happened. I think it's safe to say that there was probably some alcohol involved. So pro tip, young men, if you were about to ask a father for his daughter's hand in marriage, make sure you are very clear about which daughter you are asking for. I would recommend bringing a photo or a state ID of some kind. So now back to Jacob. One week after marrying Leah and promising to work another seven years for Laban, for his daughter Rachel, he marries Rachel. So now what could go wrong? Well, actually the text tells us what could go wrong. The two sisters then begin a war to see who can give Jacob the most sons. And they even enlist their servants, Bilhah and Zilpah, whom Jacob married, so that they, can, they could uh, see again who could produce more sons for Jacob. It is one dysfunctional family. Now polygamy isn't spe specifically condemned in the Bible, but whenever you see it, the negative effects of it are highlighted. And it reminds us of God's original design. It points us back to God's original design for marriage in Genesis chapter 2. So now Joseph is 17 years old. He's pasturing in the field with the half-brothers, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Likely that they were similar in age. And Moses introduces conflict into the story very quickly. In verse 2 it says that Joseph brought a bad report to his father about his brothers. And some people read that and they say, okay, that's clearly he, he sinned, he was a tattletale. I would say tattletale, yes, whether it was sin or not, we probably don't have enough information. He may simply have been obedient to his father. Now, I would say that no story of a man with four wives, only one of whom he really loved, uh, could not get worse, right? Things can always get worse, amen? No amens. Verse 3 tells us how Jacob managed to make it worse. He had a favorite son, Joseph. And he thought it would be a great idea to let everyone know that Joseph was his favorite son. And he was his favorite son, the text says, because he was born of uh, Jacob's old age. He was about 90 years old when he was born. 
And he was also the firstborn son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Benjamin would, were to follow. So he gave this, this special coat, a coat of either many colors or some, some scholars say what it might actually, that, that Hebrew word might mean is a, a coat of long sleeves, a, a coat that was designed for, for someone in a, in a prominent position, even a royal position. And it indicated Joseph's exalted status among his brothers and the fact that his father loved him the most. So again, what could possibly go wrong with that? Well, look at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they did two things. Number one, they hated him. And number two, they could not speak peacefully to him. How is it possible, you might ask, that God would choose this family, this dysfunctional, messed up family, to bless all of the nations by allowing the Messiah to come through that line. It is a remarkable thought. And if that doesn't give you hope in the sovereignty and the grace of God, no matter what your family looks like, then, then nothing will. Jacob loved the Lord. If you read through, you realize Jacob loved the Lord, but he was a failure as a father in many ways. First, he was a passive father. You know, when his daughter Dinah was sexually assaulted, he didn't act. And that led to two of his sons slaughtering all of the men in the village where that happened. And then when his eldest son, Reuben, went in and slept with one of his wives, he didn't act. Passivity on the part of the father kills families. It's absolutely critical that men lead and take the responsibility that God has given them. And we didn't see it in Jacob. And of course, another failure was the one we're talking about, his favoritism of Joseph. Showing favoritism didn't work out very well when Isaac showed favoritism to Esau over Jacob. Won't work out very well here for Jacob showing favoritism to Joseph, and it will not work well for you. You got to love the little devils as much as you love the little angels, right? Our responsibility as parents is to show our children the unconditional love of God that we are shown in Christ. Absolutely critical. It is a sad reality though, isn't it? You can see these characters in the Bible that were flawed. In many ways they were good, in many ways they were flawed. And parenting seems to be one of the, one of the common flaws in, uh, in men in the Bible in particular. But you know there's hope because there is a great difference between Jacob and those of us living today. We are under the new covenant brought about through Jesus Christ, which means that if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you who will empower you to live your life, to be a parent the way God wants you. So there's great hope in that. So take, take heart. Even if you have no examples of good parenting in your family, you can still do much better than Jacob, granted the bar is low, but you can do much better because the Holy Spirit lives inside of God's people. So trust in the sovereignty of God, obey his word. Now we move on to the second part of our story, Jacob's prophetic dreams. We begin here in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Getting the picture there? His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. 
And for what reason, none of us know, and we'll have to ask him, he decided to tell that to his brothers as well. And he said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Kind of a remarkable thing, isn't it? Joseph told his brothers his two dreams, and they hated him even more. And they were extremely jealous of him. They understood what Joseph's dreams meant, and they seemed to harbor at least some concern that these dreams might come true. And so the stage was set for the ultimate betrayal of Joseph by his brothers. The two dreams were similar, and that both indicated that at some point Joseph would rule over his brothers, with the second dream indicating that his parents would as well. Now, Rachel had already died at this point, so it could be that it was Jacob and Bilhah that was being referred to. But they would also bow down to, to Joseph. Here's a significant point. These dreams were given to Joseph by God, and yet God is not mentioned in this chapter. He is silent. Just like he appears to be in our lives when we're going through difficult times. Even though he is very active behind the scenes, working out his purposes, moving us along to his will, sometimes doing amazing, miraculous things, working in powerful ways that we initially miss. It's a reminder to us that God sometimes works behind the scenes. Jacob rebuked Joseph for his dreams, seemingly blaming Joseph for even having the dreams. Maybe these were a a product of a young, arrogant mind. But nevertheless, he kept these sayings in mind, probably wondering how would this incredible and seemingly inappropriate thing actually happen? So let me take a little side trip here. Does God speak in dreams? Well, clearly he does. The Bible gives several examples of that. And even today, you hear stories of God giving dreams to Muslims in closed countries so that they too might come to a, a knowledge of who Jesus is. But here's the key. God doesn't bypass his word through dreams. The dreams always lead people, if they are from the Lord, these dreams lead people to God's word. He will not bypass his word. And so if you are relying on a dream, but you're not submitting it to the truth of Scripture, you will go astray. Just like all of us will go astray if we're not diligently studying God's word. All dreams, if they're from the Lord, will coincide with Scripture. Now, we turn to, third, the, the brothers' poisonous plot. It's a longer section, so we're going to take it in smaller points. Verses 12 through 17. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. It's an interesting thing that his brothers would go to Shechem really for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was probably about 50 miles away from their, their home. 
Now, they may have just felt like, we got to get out of here as fast as we can. we got to get as far away from Joseph. We're not happy. There's no point in, in sticking around here, the way Dad's treating us. So that could have been one of the reasons. It's also surprising because where their sister was assaulted and where Simeon and Levi slaughtered the town, well, that was Shechem. And so it's interesting that they would go back to that place, but they did. And so it would have obviously taken them several days to get there. And so it was likely that Jacob became worried about his sons because he hadn't seen them for some time. And so he decided that he would send, he would send Joseph. Now his brothers should have stuck around. If they were more mature men, if they were godlier men, they would have stuck around and tried to resolve things. But they obviously had picked up some of their father's poor problem-solving skills. So he sends Joseph. Apparently, both of them were completely unaware of the risks that Joseph faced. But Joseph was willing to go. He went to Shechem, couldn't find them, overhears a man who, who finds him and says, yeah, I overheard your brother say they're going to Dothan. I mean, he must have thought, wow, what a miracle. I mean, how fortunate for me that this man found me, overheard my brothers, and now sends me in the right direction. But if you stop and think about it for a minute, you realize God could have saved Joseph Joseph from all that was to come in a thousand different ways. If that man hadn't overheard what his brothers had said, if he hadn't seen Joseph wandering around, if any one of those things or a hundred more things would have happened, then Joseph wouldn't have gone to his brothers and what is about to happen wouldn't have happened. But there are no accidents with God, right? There are tragedies that happen in our lives that if we look at it, we realize that could have been avoided by just a moment or a few seconds, if something was different, that tragedy wouldn't have happened. But God wanted to accomplish his ultimate purposes for Joseph and his family, indeed the world and the chosen people. So Joseph needed to find his brothers and God made that happen. And the same is true for us. These tragedies that may only be a moment apart, if we focus on those things, we will find no peace. What we need to recognize is that God is in control, even of those things and he is bringing about his good purpose. Next, chapter 37, verses 18 through 24. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So their brother's poisonous plot continues. And you could almost feel the hatred that they had for their brother. When they saw him, even from a distance, they began plotting his murder. And it probably didn't help that Joseph decided that the best outfit he could wear while going to look for his brother was this, this coat his dad gave him. And so they see him and they go, here comes this dreamer. It's obvious that his dreams were a source of great irritation for his brothers. Why is that? Well, it was their uncontrolled and their unrepented of jealousy. They wanted what Joseph had, and they wanted what it appeared Joseph was going to get in the future. 
And that unrepented of jealousy led to murderous intent. Sin, as Pastor Lutzer used to say, and I think I'm paraphrasing him, sin always keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and it always makes you pay more than you wanted to pay. So they planned on killing him, hiding his body, and then lying to his dad. And by so doing, they believed that they would end these foolish dreams. Kill the dreamer, kill the dreams. How ironic, though, and just like our sovereign Lord, to use the very things that people try to do to thwart his will to bring about his will. If they hadn't tried to kill him, if they hadn't been angry at him and hateful towards him, then God's plan, as it's laid out in Genesis, wouldn't have taken place. He used the very attempts to thwart his will to bring it about. Now, surprisingly, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, who just two chapters earlier in Genesis chapter 35 slept with one of his father's uh, wives, he tried to rescue Joseph. We don't know exactly what his motives were. He may have felt guilty. He may have been trying to put himself back in a good position with his dad. But he only does half the right thing. Right? The right thing is to convince his brothers, don't kill Joseph. Right? That's, that's the right part. The, the wrong part is he basically just lied to them and tried to trick them so that he could, he could rescue Joseph later. What he should have done is he should have talked his brothers out of their evil intent. And if he didn't want to do that, at the very least he could have met Joseph long before he got to his brothers, put his hand on his shoulder and said, do you see your brothers over there? the ones cleaning their swords and their shotguns, they'd like to kill you. Like, kill you dead. So I've got some advice for you. Run. Run now. You've got a head start. Not much. It may be all you need. Run back to dad. But he didn't do that. If he had, he could have saved Joseph and he could have saved himself. So they took off Joseph's hated coat. They threw him in a pit, probably a cistern that was designed to hold rainwater. There, Joseph would have died of starvation or thirst. And Reuben's appeal makes it sound like, well, we're less guilty if we don't kill him. We just put him in a pit and leave him there. And you see that kind of thinking throughout. And we're guilty of that kind of thinking sometimes, right? We rationalize. We justify things. I know what I'm doing isn't right, but it's not as bad as it could be. But it's doubtful that the Lord sees it that way. Joseph went from being a favored son to deep in a cistern, terrified and almost certain of death. If he hadn't realized how his brothers felt about his dreams before, he certainly understood that now. And we know from common sense and also from chapter 42, if we look ahead, that Joseph was in great distress. And the passage there says he begged his brothers for mercy. He begged them for mercy, but they didn't listen. Now, if Joseph knew the end of his story, If he could see the hand of God in his circumstances, then he would have been at peace. And you know, you and I know the end of our stories. God has told us. We know that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is coming back for his people. We know that if we placed our faith in him, we will be with him for all time. Just like if you reject Christ, if you don't come to him as Savior and Lord and lay your life before him, you will be separated from him for all eternity. But for God's people, we know what awaits us which means that we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding no matter how difficult the circumstances are because we know that we are in God's hands. We know that he is in control. We know that he loves us. We know that he is working out all things together for our good. Don't ever stop clinging to those truths. 
They will save you from a million anxieties. Remember the sovereignty of God. It's why he's showing us stories like this. So we understand how God deals with his people. Let's continue. Chapter 37, verses 25 through 28. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming down from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Kind of gets you right here, his sentiment. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. It just continues to get worse, right? You see, even with Jacob or with Judah, just like his brother Jacob, that they're going to uh, they're going to kind of you know uh, do half the right thing, and that's really about it. So they throw their brother into a pit and they sit sit down to eat. I mean, what a tragic but powerful example of the hideousness of sin. So even if we grant that Joseph was naive, was arrogant. He didn't deserve to be killed for that. And he was 17 years old. Where was the compassion his older brother sh should have had? When he was frightened to death, they were eating. I mean, that's, that's cold. Then the brother saw a caravan of Ishmaelites and Midianites. Both were sons of, of Abraham. They were often seen together. They were heading to Egypt. And Judah the son, through whom the Messiah would eventually come, convinced his brothers that they shouldn't kill Joseph because, after all, he's our own flesh and blood. But really, you know, there's no profit in killing him. I mean, what are we going to gain by killing him? So his solution was to sell Joseph and be done with him. So older brothers in the congregation, yes, there's a biblical example of selling your younger brother into slavery. doesn't give you permission to do it. Even if you see a group of Midianites or Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt going down your street, the answer is probably still no. Again, sad that Judah, through whom the Messiah would come, like Reuben, only did it halfway. If he had understood his role as a brother to Joseph, he would have protected him. Judah's line would, as I said, carry the Messiah, an amazing honor. But uh, chapters 37 and 38 of Judah would not be on of Genesis would not be on Judah's highlight reel for sure. So the brothers sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver, and just like that, Joseph was on his way to Egypt. We'll continue, verses 29 through 35. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. 
it breaks your heart when you realize what his sons had done. Apparently, Reuben was off on his own for a while, maybe contemplating how he would rescue Joseph, but he missed the chance to do that. And he returns and he's grief-stricken. He realizes that he has failed in his responsibility as the firstborn son. He has failed to save his brother, which is a shame because if he had the courage to do the right thing when he had the opportunity, he could have saved himself and he could have saved Joseph. But it does take courage. It takes courage to stand up to the crowd, even if the crowd is nine angry family members. The brothers then sought to deceive their father into believing that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And you know, it's reminiscent of Jacob deceiving his father so that he could steal Esau's birthright. His mom helped him, they killed an animal, and they put the skins on his, on his arms, the back of his neck, so his father would think he was Esau. It's another example of you reap what you sow. Again, notice the deceitfulness of the brother. They don't tell Jacob an outright lie, but they hand him the bloody robe and they say, well, would you identify this? Is, is this indeed your sons? And then they sit back and watch Jacob reach the logical but false conclusion that Jacob had been killed by an animal. Their plan seemed to be working perfectly. Naturally, this sent Jacob into deep and unconsolable grief. He tore his garments, he put on sackcloth, he mourned for Joseph for many days. His daughters tried to comfort him. His lying, hateful sons tried to comfort him because they could have comforted him with the truth, but they didn't. And Jacob basically proclaimed that his life was over all because of jealousy and hatred and lies that grew out of Jacob's passive and preferential fathering. This is what the Lord wants us to see. Sin always brings pain and destruction. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It always brings suffering in our lives and in others. Yes, it brings brief relief or brief pleasure or comfort, but it always makes things worse in the end. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, the Apostle Paul says this about Israel's disobedience, that it occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And may God help us to embrace that lesson this morning. And finally, our fourth point, behind all of the, the first three scenes is God's providential plan. It's in the final verse of our chapter. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Most translations use the word meanwhile. Some use the, the word and. But the idea is that at the very same time that Joseph, or that, that Jacob is mourning his supposedly dead son, a very alive Joseph is in Egypt being sold in the providence of God to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers, the captain of the guard. God had a plan for his people for Israel, ultimately for all the world through them. In Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, it says this, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgments on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." Now, Joseph would have known of this prophecy. He would have heard it from his father, passed down from his great-grandfather. He probably didn't figure that he was one of the most important people in this prophecy, but he was. 
And in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abram that through him, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's a bold promise to make to someone who had no children at the time, but it's true because the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, would be born a descendant of Abraham. God's people needed to get to Egypt. That was God's plan. They needed to get to Egypt. The Ammonites, who were the people that lived in the promised land at that time, they were already a wicked people. But God was going to give them 400 more years of grace, 400 more years of opportunity to repent and turn to him. But they wouldn't. God's people needed to be enslaved in Egypt because through that, God was going to make them a mighty nation from 70 to a million plus. He was going to enrich them with great possessions on their way out. It says that they, they plundered the Egyptians. And they needed to know that their God was mightier than all of the gods of Egypt and that he could rescue them from anything. And you know, that's what God brings us through things like this for. You and I need to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is able to bring us through anything. And so sometimes, perhaps often in your life, God brings you through something very difficult. And he says, are you going to trust me? Are you going to walk by faith and not by sight? If you know his word, you'll see how he deals with his people. And you will have confidence in his sovereignty and in his love. They needed to know that God could rescue them from anything. And in, in, in his unsearchable riches, he used Joseph and his lying, hateful brothers to get them there. If Joseph had known the end of his own story, he could have handled this detour a lot better. He wouldn't have been terrified in that cistern. He, he could have taken it in stride. Listen to what one commentator said. I think this is, it's true for Joseph. It's true for us as well. On his way down to Egypt, how eager Joseph's desire to send just one last message to his father. And with all these thoughts, there would mingle a wondering thought of the great God whom he had learned to worship. What would he say to this? Little did he think then that hereafter, Joseph should look back on that day, the day that his brothers sold him, as one of the most gracious links in a chain of loving providences, or that he should ever say, as he did to his brothers, be not grieved, not angry with yourselves. God did send me here before you. It is very sweet as life passes by to be able to look back on dark and mysterious events and to trace the hand of God where we once saw only the malice and cruelty of man. Isn't that great? That's a gift. It's a gift that comes from knowing and trusting God. So I think there's three ways that we can apply this. Number one is we need to rest in God's sovereignty. You and I as God's people, we need to rest in God's sovereignty. You're in God's hands, not in man's. And if God wants you to do prison ministry, he's got to get you to prison. Acts 7, 9 through 10 says that God was with Joseph. He rescued him out of all his afflictions and he gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. And Joseph twice acknowledged to his brothers that God was the one that was behind all this. In Genesis 45, what I just read through the quote, and then again in one of the most famous verses, Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
You know, there's a quote that I borrowed from someone I read this week, and I want to put it up here because I think this is really helpful. God's sovereignty secures God's promises. That's what we need to understand from the story of Joseph, really from all of God's word. His sovereignty, the fact that God is in control, that secures his promises. That means that nothing will cause him to break his promise. Application number two, obey. We need to obey. We need to follow Joseph's example, ultimately the example of Jesus Christ, who fully obeyed the Father. You're going through a difficult time. Your temptation will be to try to find a way to do it yourself, to add your sin to someone else's sin against you, and it will only make it worse every single time. Trust and obey. There's no better way to be happy in Jesus. God honored Joseph's obedience, and his brothers paid for their disobedience. And then finally, be encouraged. You know, God can use anyone, including you. And you know, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how messed up your family was. God can use you. It's a great example from this passage. God will use you in life-changing ways. And they may not be known to everyone. They may be behind the scenes. But God will use you in life-changing ways if you will yield to him and be available to him. You know, your past doesn't disqualify you from being used by God, no matter what your past is. It may close some doors, but it opens the doors that God wants to open. Through your past, you're not disqualified, but God will redirect you. God will direct you to the kind of ministry that he calls you to. Rest in God's sovereignty. Obey him. Be encouraged. God can use any one of us because God is in control. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have wonderfully encouraged us this morning. Joseph was a man who, who trusted you through difficult times. His example shows us we can trust you. You are indeed in control. And so, Father, may we trust you. May we seek to know you better. May we obey you. May we rest in your sovereignty and experience the peace and the freedom and the joy that you long for your people to have. May we do so with the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.